Would you take your Bible and find James chapter 1, please? And when you find it, would you stand to honor the reading of the Word of God and remain standing as we ask His blessing upon the preaching of the Word? The last two verses as we come to the end of verse of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. James says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. May God add the blessing to the reading of His Word. Father in heaven, as we come tonight and we expound upon these two small but very significant verses of Scripture from your half-brother James, I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts and that you would help us to examine ourselves and leave here better for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you consider yourself to be religious? Sometimes we use the term religion like it's a bad word. Religion is not a bad word, but there's bad religion. All right? It's not bad to be religious if you are rightly religious, scripturally religious, biblically religious. What's bad is to have bad religion. Uh, The term religion or religious is not a bad word. The story is told of the evangelical bishop, Taylor Smith, having his hair cut one day, and he was trying to talk to his barber about more important spiritual matters, but the barber was very talkative and the bishop couldn't get a word in edgewise. Finally, the bishop said to him, Do you consider yourself religious? Well, yes, I do, said the barber. I always try to do my best in life. When the barber had finished cutting his hair, the bishop paid, and then he added, you know, you could use a haircut yourself. Yes, I could, said the barber, but I'm so busy, I haven't had the time. Well, Bishop Smith said, sit down, I'll cut your hair for you. You couldn't cut my hair, said the barber. Well, yes, I could, replied the bishop, I'll do my best. Well, thank you, but your best isn't good enough for me, said the barber. And you're right, and your best isn't good enough for God either. According to the words of the New Testament, your best is not what makes it acceptable to God. God doesn't look at you and say, you did the best you could, good enough. Let me tell you something. Every religion in the world has followers that do the best they can. That doesn't make it acceptable. What makes our religion acceptable before God is, is it according to His standards, not ours? Can you imagine such a thing as being told that your religion is worthless? Could you imagine having a pastor come and visit you and sit down and talk with you and to hear you give your testimony if it wasn't biblical for him to look you in the face and say, well, I just want you to know that you got plenty of religion, but all of it's worthless. James did not mince his words, did he? James was not a kind of guy who beat around the bush. I told you, of the 108 verses, 54 imperatives, 54 commands in this little book. Such sentiments are a great shock to those people whose Only criteria for measuring the value of religion is that somebody believes it. Well, you have your beliefs and I have my beliefs, a lot of people say. You know what? That doesn't mean anything. I don't mean to imply that we should be so so stubborn in our beliefs that we say everything that I believe is biblical, so everything I believe is true, and if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. That's not what I mean to imply here. 
I mean to imply this. There are some things that we don't have to go back and ever question again. The deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the physical resurrection, the virgin birth, the sufficiency and inerrancy of scriptures. Those are not things that you never need to re-examine again. Those are staples. There are other issues in life as we grow in Christ that we may to be relatively go back and re-examine from time to time again. And we're going to grow and understand in those things. But we should be measuring everything to the Scripture. The question is not what did Calvin believe and not what did Wesley believe. The question is, is what does the Bible say? That does not mean that what Calvin and Wesley said is irrelevant. Is it relevant according to the Scripture? If it is, then quote them. If it's not, then don't. But always, ultimately, come back to the Bible. Rightly understood and exegeted and explained by men who've studied well. You know what? As I wrote in my doctrinal thesis, I came to a, one area where I talked about an inhibitor to learning called, called the imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is whenever you feel like there are people that are smarter than you that should be doing it and that you really shouldn't be in there doing it. You're just an imposter. I'll tell you that the more I read men who wrote a hundred years ago, the more I see that not only am I an imposter, but many of the popular writers today are imposters whether they know it or not. We've become a society of lazy learners who think that just because it's in print in a bound book, it's truth. It needs to be measured with the Word of God. James was writing to people who had certainly come into the Christian faith. They had left Judaism and were coming to the Lord's Day services every time they had them. They were not drunks and thieves. They were a lot like most of us here this evening. But there was something amiss about their religion. And James picks up on it in these two verses. The question facing them is just as relevant today for us. We all have religion. But is the religion that we have biblical religion? Simon Ravavak, I don't know if I've pronounced his name right or not, he's a Croat. He preaches in a Serbo-Croat church to his congregation from the former Yugoslavia. He's written a little booklet about the tongue. I bought a bunch of copies of it. We had them out here for a while. There still may even be one of them out there. He writes predominantly about the tongue from the book of James. And everyone that knows the book of James knows that 12 verses in chapter 3 address the tongue. And we'll deal with it in depth then. But on this one verse tonight where he talks about, uh, where he talks about the tongue in 26, he, he has this little paragraph. His knowledge of God and all his outward religious observances are self-deception for the man who doesn't control his tongue. That sort of religion is useless, empty. It's not substantial saving religion. It's but straw. It's dead. It's a religion akin to the devil's. No matter what this person thinks of himself, no matter what others think of him, he has a false religion. It's not I who says this. It's God through the mouth of James who says, this man's religion is vain. Your tongue is not bridled, your religion is vain. Then what is true religion? Is there a more important question in all of the world than that? What is true religion? We live in a very religious world. Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, and Hindus, and animists, and whatever else there is out there. Make no mistake about it. We do not live in an atheistic world, we live in a religious world. Communism is a type of religion. Socialism is even a type of religion. We live in a very religious world. But what is true religion? 
Will you ever be confronted with a more vital question than this? What is true religion? Well, tonight, that's what I'm going to do. I want to tell you what true religion is. The kind of religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. My aim tonight is to do just that. I want to tell you what is true religion. You can leave here tonight and you can go to work tomorrow and you can say this. I went to church yesterday and my pastor explained to me what true religion is from the book of James. It's quite simple. True religion has three characteristics. First, characteristic number one, true religion keeps a person's tongue in check. Look at what James says in verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Is that disappointing to you? Did you expect some philosophical, theological, mystical, deep first point about what is true religion? Well, I don't have one to give you. What I have to give you is the simple point that James makes. Religion is a lot more than keeping your tongue in check But if you can't keep your tongue in check, then whatever you have, it is not true religion. Let me say that to you again. Religion is more than these three characteristics, but it's not less than these three characteristics that I'm going to give you. Do you get the point? It's more than just these three things. Don't think that I'm going to give you these three characteristics tonight. You're going to walk out of here and say, I know all there is to know about true biblical religion. It's far more than these three points. All of the Bible talks about what true religion is. But listen, it is never less than these three. It can't be boiled down to less than what these three are. And the first one is very simply this. You keep your tongue in check. We'll take a closer look at the tongue when we get to chapter 3. But since James has mentioned the tongue twice already, he mentioned it in verse 19. Did you miss it? Look at verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear... And what? There's the tongue, right? He's already mentioned it twice now. He mentioned it in 19. He mentioned it again in verse 26. He's going to deal with it extensively in chapter 3. But for now, let's just touch on it. The tongue is an outward visible indication of our inward spiritual state. I went to the doctor last Tuesday and having some acid reflux and some other self-induced, worry, stressed, sin-caused symptomatic problems. You know what the doctor asked me to do when I came in and told him that my side hurts and I had acid reflux? You won't believe what he told me to do. He didn't want to stick out my tongue. Now, why in the world did he look at my tongue? My tongue didn't hurt. My stomach hurt. When I go to the doctor with a hurt foot, you know what he asked him to ask me to do? Stick out your tongue. You go to the doctor with a hurt back. What's he tell you to do? Stick out your tongue. What's the deal with their fetish with the tongue? Because the tongue tells a great deal about the health of the rest of the body. Listen, it's not just the medical doctors. The dentists are on the kick. Took my kids to the dentist the other day. What does he say before we leave? He says when they brush their teeth at night, have them take a plastic spoon and scrape their tongue. I would expect the dentist to say, have them take a plastic spoon and scrape their teeth, but not their tongue. Why their tongue? Because there's bacteria on the tongue that forms in the night and it causes there to be cavities. No, it's not. It's from eating too much candy. No, it's from bacteria on the tongue. The tongue is an indicator of internal health. You know what? My Bible says tonight that the tongue is an indicator of internal spiritual health as well. How important do you think words are? How important are words? How important is it to guard your tongue? 
Listen to the Westminster Assembly, how they spelled out the follies of the unbridled tongue in the larger catechism treatment of the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Listen to how they defined the tongue and you shall not bear false witness. It says this. This is a reference to lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tailbearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash words, harsh words, flattering, boasting, aggravating minor faults, hiding sins, envying the ability of others, contempt, innuendo, evil suspicion, and rejoicing in another's disgrace. Wow! Who can say that they're not guilty of possession of an unbridled tongue at times? We've all been guilty of it. Yet the Bible says that this is what true religion is. That you keep your tongue in check. True and kind words are fundamental to any meaningful human existence. Life collapses if the tongue is without restraint. Your tongue can be used for great good or great evil. You don't ever have to lay a hand to a child to destroy their spirit with your tongue. You never have to give a dollar to a man to make him feel rich. You can just use your tongue. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be somebody of great importance to make others feel important and loved and special. Every one of us possess what we need to do that in our mouth with our tongue. It can be equally destructive. Few things are more harsh than hard words. And listen, let's just be really honest. We say, sticks and stones may, make, may break my bones, but words will never harm me. That's not true, is it? Words do harm, don't they? Even when total strangers speak ugly and mean things, it hurts, doesn't it? Listen, true and undefiled religion means that you have control over your tongue. Well, you must realize at this point in James's epistle is that he's not just talking about our speech, though. He's really talking about self-control. That's the real issue. J. Adams talks about, in one of his counseling books, in Neothetic Counseling, he talks about how we've all learned to control our temper. Everyone in here knows how to control their temper. You ever been in an argument with your wife or your husband or angry at your children? I mean, you're just letting them have it. You're shaking that finger and you got that eyebrow pulled together to the unibrow and you're letting them have it. And the telephone rings and you pick it up. Hello? You know how you can do that? Because you know how to control your temper, but in your moment of rage, you're choosing to not control it, but to vent it. If you were honest, you'd pick it up like this. Hello! What do you want? I'm in the middle of something! And your boss would say, excuse me? Or your mother would say, shall I call back later? Or the pastor would say, I shall pray for you? <laughs> but we don't do that. We don't answer the phone that way either. Or we don't answer the door that way either. No matter what's going on, he's talking about self-control. True religion means that you learn self-control. Now listen, I don't mean to beat you up tonight because we all have a lack of self-control in different areas in our life. You might not be prone to gossip, but maybe you're prone to something else. Comfort food. Huh? Yeah? Right? Comfort food. You know what that is, right? Those of you who don't know what it is, oh, you're blessed. Those of us that know what it is, it's a lack of self-control. 
something happens in your life, whether it's stress or whatever, so you turn to the ding-dongs or the ice cream or whatever is in there. You don't care. It's just eat, 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 right? It's a lack of self-control. Maybe it's sloth. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's the shopaholic. You know that some women get stressed and they shop when they're stressed. Hallelujah, I didn't marry one of those. I don't know, maybe you got one of those. If you got one of those, don't give her no credit cards. Give her a cash and carry kind of basis, see? Self-control. James says this, true religion is exhibited in the life of the Christian and a life that has self-control. Now let me tell you this, I'll tell you up front, it's a lifelong battle. But there isn't anything more important for you to get under control than your tongue. Second characteristic that James gives of true religion is that it prompts you to help others. Again, there's nothing novel about that, is there? Notice what he says in verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. You cannot get any clearer of a definition than that. Someone says to you, what is religion? You can take them right here. James says it right here. He says, control your tongue. And then he says this, and it's, it's also this. It's that you visit orphans and widows in their distress. Now, there are some of you that are sitting there right now, and you're thinking to yourself, but I'm in trouble because I don't know any orphans, and I don't know any widows, so does that mean I don't have any religion? You're too much of a literalist. You miss the point of the Bible being a principle book not always a rule book. The principle here is that you ought to be an others-minded person. It was Jesus who said that the second and greatest commandment in all of the Bible is to love your neighbor as yourself. James tells us to minister to orphans and widows. And what he means by that is that we are, is that we are to be involved in the lives of those who have genuine need. That's what true religion does. It takes chances and it helps others. Let me just ask you to reflect for a moment. When was the last time you helped somebody else? When was the last time you took a chance for somebody else? When was the last time you didn't do what you wanted to do because somebody else needed something from you? Let me tell you something. It's never convenient to help other people in need. It's never convenient. They never call it a convenient time. They never call you and say to you, I have a great need. I need your help right now. What are you doing? I was just sitting here waiting for someone to call and tell me they needed help. That's what I was doing. I had nothing else going on. Sitting here by the phone, praying for it to ring. They call when you're in the middle of doing something else. When They call when you're in the middle of cutting your grass. They call when you're in the middle of helping your kids with their homework. They call when you're cooking supper. They call when you're about to go on vacation. They call whenever it's the most inconvenient time because that's the way God ordains it. Because God ordains it for us to be self-disciplined and selfless and others-minded to put down what we're doing and go and minister because that's what it is to be in Christ. It's to be selfless and to be others-minded. And it's not just anybody else. I'm not into I'm not into this whole social welfare thing where we help those who won't help themselves. Even the Apostle Paul said if they won't work, then don't let them eat. He says that we help orphans and widows, and what he means by that is we help those who cannot help themselves. That's what he means by that. Someone said to me, well, we have a widow in our church, but she's got living children. It's their responsibility to care for her. But what if they're not going to? Then what do we say? Well, it's still their responsibility. I don't think that's what the Bible would say to us. I think that it would say is the extended covenant family of Christ is responsible for them. Now, it may mean that we go and talk to their children and say, do you realize that your parents are in this need? 
Or do you realize that your family is in this need? We're willing to help. But you know, the Scriptures say that you have an obligation to help as well. Others-minded. True religion means that you schedule, that your schedule gets interrupted, and sometimes it gets interrupted for the sake of others. It means that you have a concern for those who cannot help themselves. It means that you give and you go where there is a need. James doesn't create some parachurch organization to meet the need. He tells you and me, we meet the need. It's also important to see why he said that a person has to have self-control. Why is it important that he says, before he says, this is true religion to minister to widows and orphans, he says, have control over your tongue? Because the, the person that you don't want helping widows and orphans is the person who has no self-control. They're vulnerable, easily taken advantage of. We need mature men and mature women who have self-control to be doing the ministry to the vulnerable. Because sometimes vulnerable people will look to take advantage of you. It doesn't mean that you don't help them. It means that you're wise and work through it with them. You have self-control, so you help them to learn self-control. Preaching on this same subject, the great preacher B.B. Werfeld address the common objections to getting involved in what I call ministry, messy ministry. I told Toby when he went off to college, I said, Toby, let me just tell you this one principle that I've learned in my short tenure in ministry, and that is this. Ministry is messy. I want to tell you, ministry is messy. Sometimes, sometimes you can find yourself beginning to help people and you'll say, man, how did I get into this? Because you know what? Ministry is messy. God doesn't save clean people. He saves dirty ones. God doesn't save perfect people. He saves imperfect people. We see a couple grown adults who've been dysfunctional all of their lives. They've grown up in dysfunctional homes. They're third or fourth generation dysfunctional. But by God's mercy and grace, they come to faith in Christ and they come into the church and they start doing things that church people don't do. You know, they're not church broke yet. Sometimes people get all excited. Do you see what they're doing? Do you see what their kids are doing? Their kids are crawling under the pews. Their kids are walking out during the service. Why can't they get a drink and go to the bathroom before the service? Hint, hint, hint. Why can't they do all that stuff? And I say to them, because they don't know any better. Because they've not been in church. Because nobody's ever pulled them off to the side and said, you know, I've noticed that your kids have to go to the bathroom a lot during the service. My kids used to do that too. What I do to help them with that is I take them before the service. Even if they say they don't have to go, we go anyway. Because you know what? It's amazing. They normally have to go. It's helping one another. It's looking out for one another. God saves broken people. And the church is here to help them be all they can be in Christ. Not to point out their idiosyncrasies. Not to point out their dysfunctionalism. Listen, there wasn't anybody more dysfunctional than me when God saved me. Now I'm perfect, but then I wasn't. My goodness. That's what God does. And He uses people like you and me to do it. We get our hands dirty because ministry is messy. B.B. Warfield addressing this subject said, someone will say, well, my money's my own. His answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. Then there, should, where we have been? Objection two, the poor are undeserving. Well, what if Christ would have said, uh, they're wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I'll go to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and he came for the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three, the poor, they may abuse what I give to them. They won't use it rightly. Christ may have said the same. Yea, for far greater truth, Christ knew that thousands would trample His blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet He gave His own blood anyway. 
Sometimes I hear people talk in imaginative language of what they would do for the Lord if they could see Him on earth. I hear people say that thing all the time. Boy, if Jesus was here today, this is what I would do. If the Lord showed up, this is what I would do. Have you forgotten that Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me? You want to know what true religion is? It's getting involved in people's lives. It's, it's coming to the church on Thursday night to teach the mentally handicapped. Every Thursday night, when nobody else is here, and half the people don't even know that you do it, but you do it anyway because you just love people and you want to do it, like Mark and Noreen and Reba and others that come and help her that they do, Don Lee. Every Thursday night, when I'm here later, I come by late, they're here. Sometimes I forget that they're here, but they're here. Week in and week out and week in and week out, and they're here on Thursday nights. Helping the mentally handicapped. It's helping somebody in the church fix something in their home. It's helping somebody. It's painting the church van. Have you noticed the new van that somebody donated to the church? It's parked right outside out here. Harold Thornborough took the church van home and painted it. I didn't know he could paint. Buddy, you messed up. I've done heard people saying, huh, who did that? Is his number in the book? You're going to get an opportunity to express true religion, brother. True religion is... Exhibit self-control. True religion is undermined. The third characteristic of true religion is to keep yourself unstained by the world, to live a clean life. There are three statements in this final characteristic that he says. Notice what he says. And to keep yourself unstained by the world. I want to break all three of those statements down. Number one, true religion means that you keep yourself. Now, you may protest, but God keeps me. That is true. But the Bible is also very clear that you're to keep watch over yourself. We know that we are saved by grace through faith, and yet the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When God tells us to keep ourselves, we better listen. True religion means that you take concern about yourself. Peter, Satan is testing you. Keep yourself, Jesus says to Peter. Don't Don't take such exhortations in some unconcerned way. We should treat them seriously. Abraham, you're going into a foreign land with powerful men who are going to love your wife if you're not careful. You better keep yourself. David, David, you're going to be out there aimlessly on that roof in the palace overlooking some beautiful woman's house. You better keep yourself. Noah, the grape harvest is in and the vats of wine are full. You better keep yourself. Peter, warming your hands by a fire and no Christians around. You better keep yourself. Let me tell you something. When, when James says that true religion is this, it's to keep oneself. It means that you are to have self-restraint, self-control. You're to be concerned about where you are. It's keep the imagination of the thoughts of your heart. Keep a covenant with your eyes like Job said. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I would not gaze upon the virgins. Keep looking unto Jesus. Keep your self-control. Keep the promise alive. Keep following the Lamb wherever He goes. Keep your quiet time. The Christian keeps himself. Not only that, but he says that true religion means that you keep yourself from being polluted. That's what he says. It's so easy to be polluted today. Maybe easier than it has ever been. Everywhere you look, there's moral pollution. The television is full is full of moral pollution. I cannot believe the kinds of things that are on regular television today. Sometimes I am sometimes I am just absolutely appalled at what I see to be comedy on television today, which is not comedy, but it is actually it's it's sinful. The internet, billboards, the lyrics of our children's favorite artists. Let me talk about that for a minute. Sometimes I hear parents say, Well, I listen to things that my parents didn't want me listening to. Well, you know what? Shame on your parents. 
That's no excuse. So if you were hooked on pornography when you were 14 and your kids get hooked on pornography, is that going to be your excuse? Well, I was hooked on pornography when I was 14 too. So if you were smoking dope when you were 15 or 16 and your kids start smoking dope, is that going to be your excuse? Well, I smoked it too. You know what? That's not an excuse. If God has forgiven you, praise God. Now stand up and be what your parents were not for you. Be a moral compass. Say to your kids, I don't care that the other kids are listening to that. It's trash and you're not listening to it. And your kids are going to protest, they're going to complain, and they're going to talk about how bad you are. But you know what? That's what the Bible says a parent's job is. God didn't give them to you for you to be their friends. They go to school to get friends. They go to church to get friends. They can get friends at college. What they need in the home is a parent. They need a parent in the home that says, right is right and wrong is wrong, and your kids and your, your friends and their parents don't dictate what we do in this house. The Bible dictates what we do in this house. Don't be polluted by the world. Just say, no, we're not going to do that. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher, died while he was still in his 20s. But many have come to Christ through his influence and through his writings. I love to read Robert Murray McShane. He's the one that said that a man is nothing more in public than what he is in private on his knees. McShane said of this, Above all things, cultivate your own spirit. Your own soul is your first and greatest care. Seek advance in personal holiness. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as a great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. One word spoken by you when your conscience is clear is your heart is full of God's Spirit is worth 10,000 words spoken in unbelief and sin. I'll tell you that when I read Robert Murray McShane, I just, I just repent for my own struggles and my own unholiness. Sometimes I'm amazed that God uses me and why He uses me. Because I stand before you and tell you that I struggle with sin too. And selfishness and covetousness and weaknesses and failures. But I don't give up the fight. And I don't make excuses for it. I find myself back before God's throne on my knees, pleading, beating my chest, saying, God, forgive me, a sinner. Forgive me, a sinner. Finally, one, the true religion means that you keep yourself from being polluted, and then he says, by the world. James uses the word world five times in this letter, and each time it's used negatively. It doesn't refer to the creation, but James uses the phrase, just as the Apostle Paul, John does, meaning mankind alienated from God and hostile to Christ. John defines the world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's a menacing system operating apart from God and His Word. Jesus considered it to be decaying. And the Christians were called to persevere. We're to be called to be salt and light in a dark world. Now, how do we do it? Let me ask you a question very practically. I think about some of the men and women in our own church. How do nurses bathe sick men? How do men become gynecologists? Preachers become governors like Mike Huckabee in Arkansas. Christians become actors and live in Hollywood. How do we do these things and not be stained? It is possible in Christ. Remember, Jesus sat at a well with a promiscuous woman, unattended by any of His disciples, and left unstained by the world. It was Jesus who allowed a woman, an impure woman, to anoint His head with perfume, to wet His feet with her tears, to dry them with her hair, and remain unstained by the world. He did it, 
and He dwells in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, we can do it too. Now, I close by being very practical. There's always a way to stay pure. If this is what true religion is, then think of the days when the snow falls. It's coming soon. I can't wait. I love the snow. I love all four of our seasons here. Don't you pray for no snow. I moved here for snow. How do we do it? How do we have this pure religion when we live in this defiled, fallen, dark, spotted world? Well, I want you to think about the days when the snow falls. I want you to think about the melting snow and the slush and the water and the mud. Oh, it just turns into a mess. No one knows the mess better than George. Boy, he works in the mess. Well, what do you do when you get clean, to stay clean? I'll tell you what you do. You walk on the sidewalk. That's what you do. You stay out of the mud. You avoid the mud puddles. You stay away from the gutter. Whenever the trucks come by and there's a big slushy, muddy pile there and you see it in advance, you don't get close to it. You don't see how close you can get and not get splattered. You stay way away from it to avoid it completely. You steer clear of the puddles. You watch out for the cars and the trucks when they come near knowing that there's going to be a spray of mud, so too in the world there was a way of Christ-likeness and walking in step with the Spirit that we can keep pure. There are all the daily pressures to grow stale. Keep on the narrow way. There are all the little things that can make us dirty. There's the ceaseless bombardment of our eyes and ears and thoughts and imaginations. Keep on the narrow way. Our values are under attack. Our standards are threatened. The Bible says, keep on the narrow way. Never mock holy things. Always admire purity, innocence, gentleness, and modesty. And modesty. What happened to modesty? Admire modesty. Never think it's sophisticated to use bad language, to drink just a little too much, to get a little way out in your clothes, to have to see every adult movie that everyone's talking about. You don't need to. You'll be just fine without it. Know that God expects you, if you are truly religious, to keep yourself from being polluted by the world, to minister to others, and to have self-control. What a good word James gives us tonight. May we leave here striving to have true religion.